Strictly speaking, a prophet's job is to speak. And in Elijah's case, to speak for Yahweh, Israel's God. Some prophets do things to back up God's words, powerful deeds for powerful words. And that's the kind of prophet Elijah is. As far as we know, he never had time to write anything down, like Isaiah or Malachi. Elijah speaks truth to power and makes the powerful scared, very scared. Elijah says it won't rain, and it doesn't. Elijah prays, and it rains again. Elijah can raise the dead. He's so important to God that when Elijah is far away from food, God sends help by angels and crows and an enemy of his nation to feed him and keep him alive. Elijah's a master of spectacle. He can call down fire from heaven, win a praying duel when the odds are 400 to 1 against him. And he can run faster than the best team of chariot horses in the whole northern kingdom. He can also order the slaughter of a whole army of prophets without batting an eye. When corrupt rulers lead the northern kingdom away from God, Elijah wins the people back to God. The people. But he still has to deal with the king and queen. The king is a royal wimp. The queen, Jezebel, well, Elijah has no trouble striking Ahab with King Ahab with the fear of God. But Jezebel, in the name of her gods, sends Elijah running fast in fear for his life. Good thing he can run fast. And this is where we meet him today. He has run south. He's a day's journey from Beersheba in the southern kingdom, and he and his servant have been on the road for a while. Elijah leaves his servant in town and goes off into the wilderness. Is it a, a spiritual pilgrimage? Is it a vision quest? No. He's looking for a quiet place to sit down and wait to die. God won't leave him alone. God sends him food and water and sends him off on another road trip, fuel for 40 days and 40 nights. Now here's a hint. When you're reading the Old Testament, if you hear the number 40, you're supposed to say, aha, 40. That way you can impress whoever's reading the text for you. 40 days and nights, 40 years. And Moses spends 40 on a mountaintop talking to God, mostly listening. And what mountain does Moses spend all that time on? The one Elijah is going to. And I suppose Elijah gets it, that if God wants him to go to that mountain, then he'll find God again. Maybe God will give him back his superpowers, or at least let him in on the next stage of God's plan. Elijah waits in a cave, just like Moses hiding in a cleft in the rock, so the full power of God's presence won't eat him up. Elijah waits, and he waits, he waits, and there's a question. 
What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah makes his plea, and he accuses God of leaving him as the last faithful person on earth. And God doesn't bother with Elijah's complaint at all. Go out, stand on the mountaintop. I'm going to pass by just like when Moses was there. So when God passes by, what does it look like, feel like? Maybe it's like the Santa Claus parade. You know Santa Claus is at the end of it, but while the parade is passing by, you still feel he's already here. Maybe that's it. And there is a parade of signs, of things that at other times have been associated with God's presence. There's a mighty wind that cracks the rocks and flips the mountains. Is God there? No. There's, a, there's an earthquake. There's a wind. There's a fire. Is God in any of them? No. And then after that, silence. Now, we know the King James words, a still small voice. But that really describes what comes after the silence. Elijah heard silence. Have you ever heard silence? Ever felt silence? It's like that moment when you stop and realize that the baby has finally gone to sleep. I found sheer silence one night standing at the edge of a compound at a, a game park in South Africa, looking out into the deep darkness of the desert. Deep, deep silence. In one of his novels, John Irving has a character who writes and illustrates children's books, and one of the books is called A Sound Like Someone Trying Not to Make a Sound. Like uh, a teenager coming home late on a weekend night, moving slowly and trying hard to avoid the steps that creak. I know a little about that. My parents were sound sleepers, but they could hear the sound of someone trying not to make a sound. And that's what I imagine the still voice, the still small voice is. A sound you have to practice to hear, to listen for. And a sound you can only hear because it's made by someone you love. So God whispers, why are you here, Elijah? And Elijah launches into the same lament as before. God just whispers. Get back on the road. I have work for you to do. And before Elijah starts to walk to the far north, from the far south, God says, by the way, you're not alone. You'll find 7,000 people who are just as faithful as you are. Now, this will be Elijah's last assignment, and it's a big one. But the call, the instructions, and the authorization come not in a bang, not in a shout, but in a whisper. 
Elijah has every reason to believe that God is with him when he's working miracles. He can assume safely that God is working through him in the dramatic confrontations that Elijah acts out for God. But Elijah has to learn God is with him, and even at work, in after times, letdown times, scared times, times of uncertainty, lonely times, even in despair. The trouble with sound and light extravaganzas, like Elijah's triumphant showdown with the priests of one of Jezebel's gods, the trouble with what we call mountaintop experiences, because there are so many of them in the Bible, the trouble when the best we can imagine becomes real, even for a moment, is that we can be trapped into believing that's all God's for. And that's all our life with God is about, waltzing from one high to the next one. And we can stop listening for God's voice and wear our eyes out looking for miracles, more victories, more celebrations, and more rewards for our faithfulness. That's the prosperity gospel. That's why it's so attractive. But it fails. The only people it's good for are the ones who preach it. And many people walk away from the church because of it, but some come back home to quieter, less promising churches that practice faithfulness for the long run, the long haul of life. Any congregation, think of it, any congregation can become an Elijah church. The downfall of a living, thriving church begins when its members start to believe it's all about them. Or worse, it's all about that minister, this leader, one group, two or three families. A church can become too much about its own success and then the memory of the success and then maintenance of the status quo and then survival all along the way, forgetting to ask, what does God want us to do now? And it's true for every one of us. It's true for congregations, for denominations, too. I grew up in the church in the 60s, when ecumenism was the thing. The more we did together, we believed, the less our differences would matter, until we discovered that our differences still mattered and we had a lot of work to do, and we're still doing that work. I started preparing for ministry in the 70s when liberation theology spread northward from Latin America. It arrived in Canada when I was in school. And if we just learned to see the world and the church's mission the way people down south did, we'd re rediscover our purpose. Nothing wrong with that thinking. If you listen enough to my sermons, you'll know that it caught me and still with me. But I started in ministry in the 80s when it was all about numbers. The Presbyterian Church in Canada was going to double its membership in a decade. If everyone just learned and applied church growth principles, 
the church would grow and its future would be guaranteed. In the 90s, the call was to reimagine the church, to restructure and even leave our structures. And as the century turned, I made a big change and served a church of a kind I hadn't served before. And the experts said that kind of church had to become a boutique church, become known for one great thing, and people who like that one thing will come. So we tried it. And the next day, decade I mostly taught, and the key, everyone said, was leadership. If we just prepare and hire the right leaders, the church will be transformed. And now here we are, it's 2017. Who should we listen to? Is there a prophet who can tell us what our future is? Now, there are good things in all of those things I've mentioned, things that churches have tried and too often give up because they don't see instant success. Miracles don't happen. We don't have to throw them all away. Just stop believing there is a miraculous answer to every problem that there's an instant answer to all our questions about the future. And churches today, some try to return to the glory days. Some turn and run away from challenges that they see as threats. Some congregations just find a spot to sit and wait to die. Some get on the road, not sure where it will lead them, hoping they'll find God somewhere. But do we ever stop to listen for the silence and then the still small voice? Do we stop to ask, what does God want us to do next? And then wait to hear the answer. And do you and I, do we listen? Our saints are watching but as hard as we look back at them, they're not going to tell us what to do. We have to figure that out for ourselves. And they trust us to do just that. And we start by listening to one another.